All right. Well, we're in Second uh, Samuel chapter seven. We're going to be looking at verses nineteen to twenty-nine. The rest of the the chapter. Just a little bit of review before we get into the thing tonight. Remember the the Ark of the Covenant was finally brought to Jerusalem. There was kind of a spat between David and his wife, Michal, and now it it comes to what is perhaps probably one of the most important chapters we talked about this last week in the Bible because it talks about the Davidic covenant. It talks about the Messianic line. Before we read the the passage for tonight, let's just just open a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can gather here in this place. Thank you that your word is is able to make us wise unto salvation. And Father, we pray tonight that you would just uh, lead us and guide us through our, our study of uh, your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to read verses 18 to 29, and then we'll go back and make a couple comments on it. Then King David... Um, remember this this chapter before I read it this chapter is broken up into two sections okay what God did he made a covenant with David um, concerning the Messiah the messianic line we talked about that last week a little bit and then from 19 or from verse 18 on it's basically David's response to what God did and so as, as you look through this um, as we, we read through it, that's, that's kind of the, the backdrop. But three things have happened so far. The kingdom of Saul and the kingdom of David. Remember, there were two distinct kingdoms. Well, now they're unified. And David is the king over, over everything. Uh, Abner was, had, had defected, defected to uh, David. Remember in, in Ishbosheth, the final son of Saul, the eligible son for the monarchy, um, is dead, and there's only one nation now. The nation has been unified together. Secondly, um, Jerusalem has been captured, and the city which uh, we call the city of David or Jerusalem is now uh, in the, the hands of, of David and, and the Israelites. And then thirdly, the Ark of the Covenant finally returned to its proper dwelling place there in Jerusalem in a tent, as it has been in, in former times. And so uh, last week we were introduced to God's prophet Nathan. And um, he, he, he's speaking to David. Uh, he, he's going to talk to David with this whole thing with Bathsheba coming up in the coming chapters. But uh, he's probably David's closest confidant and spiritual advisor. That's what the, the, the role of the prophets were. He was a prophet of the Lord. And David basically makes a proposal to him. Last week we saw this in verses 1 through 17. And the enemies are pretty much away from them. They're resting from all these battles they've been through. And David is sitting in his palace. And years have probably been gone by. And, and he realizes, hey, you know what? God's dwelling in a tent. Why am I dwelling in a house? I want to build God a, uh, a house. And Nathan just says, well, do whatever you want to in your heart. Do whatever's in your heart. I don't think Nathan was speaking as a prophet. He didn't doesn't say that he went to the Lord and inquired of the Lord. It didn't say anything about that. As a matter of fact, God kind of rebukes the whole situation. And really, it's it's God's grace when you stop and think about it, because a prophet uh, is not supposed to be wrong on these kind of things. But God, in His grace, kind of steps in before things get out of hand, 
and say, hey, you need to go tell him no. The answer is no. He's not going to build the house. His son uh, Solomon will build it uh, down the road. And so we, we see all this, this happening up to this point, and, you know, we can't question David's motive here. Some people, oh, he wanted to do it out of pride or whatever. I just think he was sitting there looking at where he was living and what God's ark was dwelling in, and he uh, felt compelled to, to build God a, a temple to, to dwell in. Um, you can't read into it any more than what's there. But it talks about the, the first 17 verses here talk about the Davidic covenant. And so this is what God did. God made a, a covenant with David and his house. He established his kingdom. It wasn't a temporary thing. Uh, it says there forever it was established. And this is the line that the Messiah, uh, Jesus Christ, would come through. And so when we begin to read verse 18, this is David's response to what God had just shared with him. So it reads in verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the instruction for mankind, O Lord God. Verse 20, And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart. You have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, there, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name, and doing for them great and, and awesome things by driving them before, by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. Verse 25, And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. So this is God's, uh, David's response, okay, David's response to what um, God told him. And so when you look at, you know, have you ever had God just tell you no? Just flat out no. You're praying about something, you're desiring something, you're thinking it's God's will, but boom, he just slams the door right in your face. No. Uh, this is basically what happened to David here. 
come up with this idea. I'm going to build this house for God. And God says, no, no, you're not. Sorry. And look at David's response in verse 18. Then King David went in and he sat before the Lord. He went in and sat before the Lord. It's a beautiful response. I don't know about you, but I'd probably be sulking at this point. I'd be griping. What do you mean I can't? Come on, Lord. What's, what's the problem? Uh, he, he goes in, he sits, he begins to think, he begins to meditate, he begins to pray. He really begins to pour out his heart, as only David can, the psalmist. Um, and he, he, he explains to us some beautiful things in this text. He doesn't pout. Um, he doesn't sulk. He's not offended. But, but David's response is, is the posture of, of, of a little child. Um, that's what we love about David. That's why the Psalms are so loved, just the way he writes and the way he approaches the Lord. This is the Holy Spirit within the heart of David communicating God's grace and his love. And uh, this, is, this is the godly side of David, you might say. Um, and that's, you know, where we can understand that Jesus would come from his line when you see this side of David. And you look at the humility here. He says there, verse 18, Who am I, O Lord, and what is my house that you have, have brought me thus far? And so he, he's basically saying, Wow, who am I to receive this, this blessing from you, Lord? Um, instead of saying, you know, Well, why don't you just let me do what you know, I want to do for you, God? He doesn't do that. He says, you know what? You have been so kind to me. You have been so gracious to me. You have shown your favor to me time and time again. This is what he's explaining. Um, who am I? I'm such a blessed man. That should be our response to the Lord when we are in these kind of situations. Um, I mean, God just said no to him, and here he is pouring his heart out to God in gratitude. He really worships the Lord here. Uh, that's always the solution, by the way, when you're having a difficult time uh, with God. It's, it's to bow the knee, to bend the knee, to find yourself in a place of worship. Um, when it's your will or God's will, you know, you know how that usually plays, off, plays out. There's usually a conflict. Okay, Sometimes we want something so bad we're unwilling to give it up. And how do you resolve conflict? I mean, you can read books about this. You can go to conferences about this. There's intermarital conflict resolution, you know, places you can go, interchurch conflict revolution, uh, resolutions that people will come to actually, they'll come to your church, a team of people, and say, okay, we're here to resolve the conflict in your congregation. There's churches that are so sick, they can't even deal with the own, their own problems. They need someone from the outside to come in and tell them, how to get out of this situation. We're not talking about this. We're talking about conflict resolution with God himself. I mean, when God says no to you, what do you do? Well, David worshiped. You do what David did. You go and you sit before him. You ask God humbly, show me why this has to be this way. Uh, You think about how great God is, what God has done for you. You think about his loving kindness toward you. You count the blessings that he's blessed you with. I mean, that's what David is doing here. He's really reviewing, okay, God, let's see, up to this point, this is what you've done for me. (laughs) Okay, so if you're saying no here, I kind of have to respect this. 
I have to conclude that you understand what's going on, and maybe I don't. Um, I mean, it would have been wonderful if, if David got to build this house for God that he wanted to. Uh, I think it was a genuine desire on David's part to do this. And I think he was doing it for the, 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 the glory of God. But it wasn't God's will. See, and sometimes we, we forget that. We can want good things. It doesn't mean that we're desiring sin. I'm not talking about that. That's obviously conflicting with God's will. But sometimes we want to do something that's good. Maybe we want to serve more. Maybe we want to help somebody. We want to do whatever. And we just think because it's a good thing, we'll just go off and do it. Well, sometimes we need to stop and say, God, do you want me to do this? Is this something that you want me to do? Um, I mean, in the quietness of your own hearts, in your minds tonight, what is it that God has said no to you to? When you've gone before him with your petitions and his answer was just, no, it could have been some dream maybe you had, younger in life, some ambition, aspiration, whatever it is. It wasn't an evil thing, obviously. It wasn't a, a bad thing. It was a good thing. But God just said no. And you've got to stop and you've got to say, well, how did I respond to that? How about when God says no to you, but yes to somebody else? You want to do something, he shuts you down, and that person wants to do the same thing, and they get the green light. You're like, well, what's up with that? Um, well, we have to do what David does. He goes before God, he ponders God, meditates on him. Um, remember that song, uh, Count Your Blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessing. You'll be, you'll be surprised what God has done. Sometimes that's what we have to do. We just have to sit down and, and say, God, what, what are the blessings that you've brought into my life? And I guarantee you, they far outweigh the conflicts, the issues. And it just helps us to keep our head in the game and keep our perspective. Um, at the end of chapter 7 here, it almost reads like a psalm. I mean, this is David who wrote the psalm, most of the psalms anyway, and he, he's contemplating God, his heart just stops before the, the, the um, greatness and majesty of God, and, and we're going to look at those closing verses, because that's really what he's, he's doing. But remember, there's a lot of humility here on David's part. He says, this was a small thing in your eyes, he says there in verse 19, oh God. He's just beginning to realize that God has bigger plans than David's little house for God. <laughs> I mean, it's blowing his mind at this point. This is a small thing. It's contrasted, really, with the great thing there in verse um, uh, 20, 21, where he says, you have brought about all this greatness. It's, it's kind of a contrast there. He's saying, this is just a small thing. I mean, you, you can do small things. You can do great things. This is incredible. And when he says there that, uh, Lord, you have, O Lord God, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. That, that term there, O Lord God, is, is a God of, uh, or a term of God's sovereignty. It, it's really explaining that this is, this is an incredible God. This is a God that's totally, completely in control of everything. 
And he uses that phrase over and over and over and over again because he wants us to understand that this is not a God who's reactionary in his responses to us. This isn't a God that, you know, just willy-nilly goes about his day, whatever. He has a plan. He has a purpose. And his plans and his purposes will be fulfilled. And so he, he wants us to understand that. He wants us to, to see that. And so this promise really leads to David praising God. He, he responds in praise for what God has done in the past. And then he begins to uh, be led into prayer. Well, look at verses 19 to 22 there, because it talks about the praise that we can praise God for his promises. It says this was no little thing. And then verse 20, it says, And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord your God. Just go, you can go through there and you can um, underline that your servant or circle. It happens 10 times. See, David really understands his role here. In this, in this prayer, he refers to himself as your servant 10 times. Um, and yet, he's calling God my master lord, basically. Literally, that's what that means. Uh, it combines Adonai, Adonai, which is the Hebrew for lord or master, and Yahweh, which is the name for lord. So he's really saying, you know, you're my, my lord, my master. And uh, over and over, he says, for you know your servant, verse 20. And he probably, that's probably a... a, a looking in his own heart and he's like hey you know what's in here you know he's, he's not holding himself up here as some specimen of superiority he's saying no you know what's in my heart uh, you know what I'm really like David is admitting this and see the, the neat thing is that as you read down here further it says you, you know me uh, if you know your servant then verse 21 because of your promise and according to your own heart you have brought all about this greatness to make your servant know it. What's God saying here? He's telling David, you know what? This is not based on your merit. <laughs> this is not based on who you are or how great you are or what you think about yourself. This is based on my will, on my plan, on my purpose. And that's how God operates, isn't it, in our lives? I mean, aren't you thankful that God doesn't grade us just based on merit? I mean, we would flunk yesterday. I mean, it would not be a good scenario for any of us. But here, David wants us to see that, you know what? His, his um, promises are, are reason for us to praise God because that's really what we hold on to. We hold on to the promises of God. I mean, we can't really adequately express praise due to God for his grace, because God has done such a great thing in probably every one of our lives. And, and that's what David describes. He's describing this covenant as this great thing. In other words, it's far surpassing his wildest expectations. God, I just wanted to build you a house. Now you're telling me that, I mean, the Messiah is going to come through my line? My line? This is incredible. I mean, what do I have to deserve this? And he continues here in verse 22 he says therefore because of this you are great O lord god for there is none like you there is no god besides you according to all that we have heard with our own ears 
See, he turns it right around and he says, well, it's not about me. This is what God was sharing with me. He finally got it. It's about you, God. See, if we can understand that, that even our own, what, our own salvation, it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about what? It's about God's glory. That's what it's ultimately about. And see, we, it's, it's hard for us to grasp that because we think we're the center of the universe just by our own nature. And yet, you know what? I mean, God saved us not just to keep us out of hell. God didn't save us because, oh, well, I just like you. You're special. No. God saved us for his own glory. And if there's any of our ego involved in that at all, that steals from, that robs from God's glory. And so David wants us to understand that. And then he begins to talk about God's people here. In verse 23, he says, Who is like your people, Israel? And we're not just talking about God now, we're talking about God's people. The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people. I mean, do you understand how special Israel is in the heart of God? And it grieves. It grieves the heart of God when people don't recognize that. These are, are God's chosen people. Making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt a nation and its gods. Do you see the possessiveness there? Mine. These are my people. These are your people, God. Uh, th- this is how God feels about Israel. That's why, you know, we have to be very careful as a nation. You know, now Israel's not perfect. Okay? They're not going to do everything perfect just because they're God's people. I mean, look at their track record, right? I mean, they're roaming all over the place because they keep on messing up. But they're still God's people. Why? Why are they God's people? Not based on their merit, right? They're based because God sovereignly chose them. I mean, he could have chose somebody else, but he didn't. He chose them. And see, that's why, you know, the Bible is very clear. It says those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. Why? Because they're God's people. You know, and that's why it's so important that we make that designation. We understand that, hey, you know what? The, the church is not Israel today, and Israel is not the church we don't believe in what they call replacement theology, that somehow the church comes along and because Israel is so disobedient, they don't matter anymore and the church was raised up and now the church stands in Israel's stead and all the promises that were for Israel now apply to the church. That's heresy. That robs God of his glory because Israel is his people. And so the question in, in, in verse 18, who am I? He starts off there, who am I? But then in verse 23, he says, who is like your people, Israel? Right? Who, who are like these people? They're unique. See, and when you know the God who created you, you are unique. You're set apart. That's what we've been talking about on Sunday. Um, well, what makes God's people so special? It says there in verse 23, that they are one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself. It's the same thing. It's a parallel, okay, when you think about the church of Christ. What's make, what makes the church of Christ so special? What God went out and he redeemed a people 
for himself. That doesn't make the church Israel. But there's a parallel there. We're the only group on earth who have been redeemed from our sins and death to enjoy a relationship with God. The only people are people that are within the confines of Christ's church. I mean, that's a privilege. That's, that's a, a definitely an ex, 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 exclusiveness to that. Not based on who we are, but based on God's sovereignty, God's choice. Um, and not only that, but the eternal reign of God's king will create an eternal relationship for God's people with God. That's what he talked about last night, this or last week, this, this the week before, whenever we were in the first part of uh, chapter 7 there, when we were talking about this covenant. This covenant isn't based on, well, what if they disobey, or what if David doesn't? No, it's, it's a covenant that God makes with David, and he declares it an eternal covenant. It's something that's forever. And that's the same thing with us. When we're brought to Christ, when we come under the blood of Christ, when we are, have our sins forgiven, we're, we're, we're saved, that is an eternal relationship. I mean, yeah, thank you, Lord, it's right. Um, and see, the emphasis isn't on the people. God isn't looking at the people going, oh, the people of Israel, they're so great, I had to choose them. He's not looking at the church going, well, you people are just the A team, you know, I had to choose you. No, the, the emphasis is on God. Because it says there in verse 23, if you look at that, it says, why did he do this? God went to redeem, to be, uh, to, to be his people, making what? Himself a name. <laughs> and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out. This is for God's, what, glory. This is for, for God that he did this. Uh, any talk of privilege from Christians as a result of being part of the church or being part of God's people, whatever, it has to lead us back to what? The foot of the cross to bow down before our, our God, our creator, in thanksgiving and praise because we realize it's not us. It's not us that, that lends a hand in this salvation. It's God that does it. And so we see that David turns from praising God for these for, for God and then for also for his people his promises his people but then he begins to turn into kind of a, a, a you might say prayer verse 24 it says and you shall establish for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever and you O Lord became their God and then 25 begins this this it kind of changes a little bit the the Wording changes, the sentiment changes a little bit, and he begins to not just praise God for his, his promises, but he's actually praying God's promises back to God. He's telling God what he just said. Uh, look at this in verse 25. And now, O Lord God, once again, dialing down on his sovereignty and his majestic, majestic glory, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant. And concerning his house, and do as you have spoken. How many times have you gone back to God and prayed his promise to you back to him? That's what we need to be doing. That should be part of our regular prayer time. You know, because you're praying, well, you're praying, you're praying God's will. If God promises to do something, you know he's going to do it. 
David asks God to do what God has already said he will do. I mean, that may seem a little odd, but it's throughout Scripture. Moses did this in Exodus 32, verses 12 and 13. He, he pleads for mercy for Israel after the golden calf incident. You remember this? By asking God to remember his promise to Abraham. That's what Moses does. He goes, hey, God, remember, you promised this, you know. Or Nehemiah prays for struggling Jerusalem by asking God to remember his promises to Moses in Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Or in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9, we're told in verses 7 and 8 about the people who pray on the basis of God's promises to Abraham. Or even Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. He asked God to deliver the Jews after 70 years in exile after reading Jeremiah's promise that God would deliver the Jews after 70 years. He puts it right back in God's face and says, hey, by the way, here's what you said. Just, just reminding you. The Puritan named William Gurnall. And he said this, Prayer is nothing but the promise reversed or God's word turned inside out and formed into an argument and retorted back again upon God by faith. That's what our prayer should be. It's not just that we can pray using God's promises, but it, it gives us confidence. I mean, when you're, when you're telling God something that he already told you, and that's where... You know, in 27, uh, verse, verse 26, he says, In your name be magnified forever, saying the Lord of hosts be, be, uh, Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established forever. But look at verse 27. He says, For you, O Lord of hosts, O God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Based on your own words, God. I mean, what can we as poor, feeble sinners presume to ask of the Lord God Creator? The answer is, we can ask what he promised to us. And we can ask it unapologetic, without apology. John Trapp, another Puritan, said this, promises must be prayed over. God loves to be burdened with and to be urgently pressed with requests in his own words. He loves to even be sued upon his own bond. For prayer is putting God's promises into suit. And it is no arrogancy or presumption to burden God, as it were, with his own promises. John fourteen fifteen says, and this is the confidence... Right? When we pray, we should have confidence. This is the confidence that we have when we approach God. What is it? That if we ask anything according to his will, right, he hears us. I mean, that should give us encouragement. So make it a practice to pray back to God his promises. Well, how do we know what God's promises, what God's will is? Uh, we don't know it through some uh, mysterious inner voice or... Or, or something like that. How do we know what God's will is? We know what God's will is simply because he told us. Right? 
he told us in his word. Um, we, can, we can totally be confident that we're making appropriate requests when we, when we align our prayers with God's promises as they're revealed to us in his word. You don't have to guess. So God's promises should shape the way that we pray. Uh, we should be shaped with a, a, the concern that God has for his own glory, the advancement of the kingdom as he promised it to David. In verse 25 and 26 here, it talks a little bit about the, the glory of God among the nations. This is what he says in verse uh, 26. I kind of skipped over that, but he says, And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. So all these promises, all these praise, all these prayers, it's all for God's glory. That's the purpose of it. It's not for our own. Uh, When God threatened to destroy Israel after she refused to enter the promised land, remember, um, Moses prayed on the basis of God's reputation. In Numbers chapter 14, verses 13 and 16, he, he suggested that the Egyptians would conclude that God was unable to protect his people. God, if you let this happen, they're going to conclude you're powerless if your people are destroyed. In Isaiah chapter 37, verse 20, when Jerusalem was threatened by the uh, Assyrians, Hezekiah prayed for deliverance so that all kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. Or in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel asked to deliver the exiles for your sake because your city and your people bear your name. See, the glory of God even dominates the Apostle Paul's prayers in Romans and in Ephesians, Philippians, 2 Thessalonians, all those places. It's all for the glory of God. It's not for our glory. It's for God's glory. And then verse 28 here, he talks about having confidence. Just in our walk with the Lord, and our prayers with the Lord, he says, and now, O Lord God, you are God. He just makes that, that statement. It speaks of the nature of God himself. I, I, I'm totally confident that most believers who struggle in their Christian walks do not have a proper understanding of who God is, any of his attributes, what he's done for them, and the power that he has given them through the power of the Holy Spirit. They have no clue. They're just going throughout their life, just you know, from one trial to the next, one crisis to the next. And usually they're depressed, they're beaten down, because they don't understand who their God is. That's why we have to understand who God is. We have to understand the nature of God himself. And that's what he says here in verse 28. He says, and now, O Lord God, you are God. You are exclusively God. There's no other God besides you. Period. That, and we're on his team. Right? I mean, he, he picked us. He selected us to be part of his team. And he's the only team leader there is. All, all the other ones don't even stand a chance. I mean, that should give us confidence in his faithfulness. And then secondly, he says there, talks about the truthfulness of his words in verse 28. You are God and your words are true. Not some of them, not most of them, all of them. See, if we don't believe in the inerrancy 
the inspired word of God, we, we, don't, we don't believe in anything. You know, if we can pick and choose, well, I believe this verse, but I don't, I don't, I don't agree with this. We don't have a chance. I mean, you're, you're, you're setting yourself up for failure. You have to trust in the truthfulness of God's word. And that's what I appreciate, really, uh, not to point you out, Dave, but your passion for some of these, these Bibles and stuff that we have over there. And just when you talk about it, it just, you know, you, you can just hear the emotion in your voice because you realize the price that people have paid to preserve the Word of God so that we could have our own personal copy of it, probably more than one. And how many times do we come home from church and throw it on the bookshelf and maybe not pick it up until next week when we're going back to church? I mean, this is God's Word. We need to be studying it. It's true, every word of it. And then another reason for our confidence is not just the nature of God himself or the truthfulness of his Word, but also reliability of his, of his promises. He says, at the end there, he says, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. You know, how many things, fun little Bible study to do is just get on your computer and what has God done, done, done for those who believe in him? What are some of the blessings that, that result from our salvation? And you start making a list. I mean, the, the list is really endless. You know, well, he forgave my sins. Okay, you can start there. And he, you, you go down the road. And, and you begin to find in Scripture the very breath you breathe is a gift from God. Even if it's filled with a little smoke. Okay, I mean, it, I, I'll take air with a little smoke versus no air at all any day of the week. Okay, so we, we have to be uh, confident that, that, you know what, God will care for us. He does care for us. And these are our promises that he made to um, David. And so he, he says there, hey, you know what? You promised this good thing to your servant. And I'm going to hold you to account. But if you don't know what God's promised you, it's hard to pray his promises back to him. It's hard to hold him to account for his promises. It's hard to have that confidence. And then the last thing here he speaks of in verse 29 is just praying for God's people. He sums it up. He says, Now therefore may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. David really is doing this on the basis of God's covenantal faithfulness. He says, you know, may it please you to bless your servant, the house of your servant. May this continue forever. It goes really all the way back to the promise uh, that God made Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. The promise to Abraham included the promise that all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Remember that? And just as God's covenant with Abraham is a blessing for all people, so God's covenant with David is a blessing. So we need to be reminded that we need to praise God for his promises, praise God for his people, pray back to God his promises, and pray for God's people. Um, there was a, probably heard of Hudson Taylor, he's a famous missionary to China, 
and he was speaking at a large Presbyterian church, so the story goes, in Sydney, Australia. And the person, you know, they were very privileged to have him come and speak because he's a pretty famous missionary. And uh, he began to say all these extraordinary things that Hudson Taylor had done and accolades and all this stuff and how wonderful Hudson Taylor was and all of his achievements. And you could kind of tell Hudson Taylor was getting a little uncomfortable. This went on and on for minutes. And he finally introduces him as our illustrious guest, missionary Hudson Taylor. And Hudson Taylor stood up, and there was a very long pause as he stood behind the pulpit. And he said this, Dear friends, I am a little servant of an illustrious master. That's what I am. And see, I think that's the spirit of David here in 2 Samuel 7. He's realizing, wow, God, you're going to do this through me? I mean, yeah, he's, he's got some hang-ups. We're going to see him. <laughs> but, you know, this little servant is just here to do whatever God wants him to do and to be content with whatever God wants him to be content with. And if we can get to that place, if we can get to that place where we're content where God has us, we're not constantly, it doesn't mean you don't have plans and goals. I'm not saying that. But you know that in your heart, this is where God has me right now. And yeah, I have desires and I have, I have other things that maybe I want to do. But you know what, God, that I, I want to make sure that that's what you want me to do. If, when you're in that place, you're in a place where God can truly use you and uh, uh, work through you. Well, let's close in a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll bug out of here. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, thank you for your just uh, the way you, you use David and you work through him. Um, we thank you that we're part of the kingdom that you promised to David that will last forever. Uh, by grace through faith, we've been brought into the same family, the family of God. We call you Abba, Father. We are your children, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ Jesus. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would um, really remind us of all the promises that you've made to us and that these promises last forever. And I pray that you would help us tonight as the body of Christ in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves to do what David did and to worship you in a way that's honoring to you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.